Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, um, chapter 20? We're going to be studying verses 17 through 32. This will be the third sermon in our series called Centered, the Foundation, Glory, and Mission of the Gospel. Our first sermon focused on Paul calling the gospel of first importance. And so, boy, we sure want to call the gospel of first importance, too. It's preeminent. The gospel is the foundational center of all of our preaching, but not just our preaching, of our practice. We seek to preach gospel doctrine that ultimately is demonstrated in gospel community. And I think you kind of got a sense of that even in the baby dedication today. The gospel's front and center and it, it creates a kind of people that display Jesus. Last week in Eric's excellent sermon, and you guys, every Sunday that I, that I hear Alan or Eric or Hugh minister, Eric, Eric is a candidate for eldership. As, as Alan and Hugh minister the gospel, aren't you glad for a plurality of elders? It's, it's one of the sweetest gifts of God to the church. Because, because then we, we're reminded that, that the church is not dependent on a personality. It's dependent upon the Word of God. And isn't it wonderful how God uses such different men, all with the same calling, different levels of strength and abilities and things like that, but uniquely dedicated to God's Word. And, and we learn about Jesus more fully through a plurality than we would by any one individual. So I'm just so thankful. In fact, can you, can you express your thanks to Hugh and Alan as, as our elders? And, uh, and, and certainly, Eric, we were all so blessed with last week's sermon. And, and in last week's sermon, we learned that pondering and prizing and praising God by pondering his gospel fundamentally is really the foundation for bringing God the highest glory. Being gospel-centered is the way to bring God the highest glory. And this morning, we will learn how the gospel is the center of the mission that we have been given to make disciples. This morning, we're going to look at, at gospel-centered discipleship as it pertains to our children. You know that we'll be, um, we're prayerfully launching children's ministry in late November. You know, that's dependent on the finishing of the renovation, but that's, that's our target date. And then Alan will finish this series in teaching how the gospel is at the center of making disciples through small group ministry. And we call that discipleship groups. And, and though we'll have a, a, a series of new discipleship groups launching in January. So we're so excited about all that. We do this so that you'll see that we do not do children's ministry and we don't do small groups pragmatically. Um, in, in other words, we don't do those things as a way of trying to become a larger church. Maybe if we did these things, we would be a larger church. That's not why we do these things. We do these things informed and inspired by the gospel. So would you join me in reading our text for this morning? Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord 
with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Oh, Heavenly Father, could you take the passion of Paul to declare the whole counsel of God and to model what a life transformed by that whole counsel of God looks like. Would you transfer it to our hearts today? Would you transfer it to our hearts as pastors? Would you transfer it to our hearts as parents? Would you transfer it to our hearts as children ministry volunteers and youth ministry volunteers? Would you transfer it to our hearts as a church family? Please, God, for the glory of your name and the advancement of your mission, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I debated whether or not to use this illustration or not because it may be so old school. There may be three of us in the room that are going to understand it. But when I was a little boy, one of the games we played was marbles. So can you humor me to say, does anyone know what even I'm talking about? Playing with marbles. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. Thank you. Are you doing that just to make me feel better? Poor Pastor Billy. He's getting so old. Just raise your hand. Just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, oh, well, maybe with the advent of video games, you know, I don't know. I don't know how many people play marbles today. 
In the game of marbles, in case you don't know, you'd make a circle about three feet across, and you'd scatter a bunch of marbles on the inside of the circle. Each player would have a shooter marble. We, I, I, that's what, what, shooter marble. I call them boulders. Did you kind of, they, were, they were a bigger marble. Um, and uh, it was bigger than the rest of the marbles in the circle. And the goal would be to use your shooter marble to knock as many marbles as possible out of the circle. Because the person with the most marbles at the end of the game would be the winner. Well, sadly, I played with a bunch of boys who really had sin problems. And uh, usually that just resulted on throwing marbles at each other. If you're going to take my marble, I'm going to throw it at you. I'm going to make you hurt in order to get my marble. But um, anyway, so we, we didn't always play the game the way I'm sure it was designed to be played. You know, um, <laughs> you could have come to a game like that, and you could have come with a whole can of marbles. I just remember a coffee can. A coffee, my marbles I held in a coffee can. Um, and if you played poorly that day, it really would be possible for you to have lost all your marbles. And so those of you who are giggling, I don't even know if that phrase is used that much anymore, but that phrase ultimately would be used to describe being confused, disoriented, or even losing your mind. Have you lost your marbles? You know, that kind of a thing. There are a few different kinds of marbles besides the, 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 uh, the boulder, or the shooter marble. There was one called a steely. Anybody remember steelies? They were made out of steel. There were some, some called cat, cat's eyes. And they were made out of glass. And while you might carry your steelies and boulders and cat's eyes all in the same coffee can, they really just remained individual and independent items with no real relationship or connectedness to each other. And because of that, they could be easily lost and really of no ultimate value. Well, why such uh, an illustration? I'm concerned we're living in a time when people's understanding of God's word is a lot like a kid with a can of marbles. People may know some Bible stories, but they don't know those Bible stories, um, but they know those Bible stories as individual and independent stories that really ultimately just teach you how to be a better person. Or if you have enough faith, how you can be like David and kill your Goliath. Or how you can be like Daniel and not be afraid of your lions. You know, reducing the Bible to just a bunch of stories we carry around in our brains, it does not result in people experiencing the glory of God in Christ. And in His gospel. Because they're not seeing the Bible as a unified whole. Instead, they're seeing the Bible like individual marbles that really have nothing to do with each other. Instead of seeing them like that, we need to see the Bible as more something like a string of pearls that are all joined together. This is how we experience the glory of God in Jesus Christ because of the redemption that sinners receive through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's the cohesive storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And it, seems that the more, and it seems that the more that a Christian knows the cohesive storyline of the Bible, 
as a unified whole, the more God causes the believer to unite the storyline of the Bible and the mission of the gospel with every part of his life. It's, it's amazing how that happens. You can be talking to two people who both say they're Christians, and this one just knows, knows Bible stories as much as they know Mother Goose fairy tales. And this person really knows the redemptive storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and how passionate God is to want to save sinners and, and to reveal that in every book of the Bible I've been pointing to your need of salvation and my gift of grace to save you through the Messiah. Genesis to Revelation. And it's amazing how both of these people, how the mother goose fairy tale individual marble type kind of a believer really just seems to have very little to no passion for the things of God. But the person who really sees the, the passion of God from Genesis to Revelation, they seem to not only see it at a co as the, the Scripture as a cohesive whole, it seems to give them this cohesive sense that all of my life is to be affected by this gospel. That's, that's what I think that we're, what I'm hoping that you'll see today as we talk about children's ministry and when Alan teaches on small group, group ministry. Paul had a phrase for this string of pearls, this unified whole, this, 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 um, this redemptive storyline of the Scripture. And if you notice in Scripture, he called it this morning the whole counsel of God. That brings us to our main point. God has called us to be devoted to the teaching of the whole counsel of God to the next generation so that they will be devoted to teaching the whole counsel of God to the generation after them. Or you could put it this way. The goal of this sermon is to make you lose your marbles and exchange them for the treasured string of pearls that is the redemptive storyline of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. So what a, what a great way. If you're not getting anything else out of this, you can go to lunch today. What did Pastor really talk about? Losing his marbles. Which a lot of people go, well, he's same old Pastor Billy, you know. Well, let's, start, let's dig into this. The, the first point this morning is let's talk about what this whole counsel of God is. And Paul talked about it as a priority. And you, you really see in verse 17, he kind of introduces it. We get, we, we, we're jumping in. We're landing in a story already in progress. At this point in Paul's life, he's in, at Miletus. That's about 30 miles away from Ephesus where he had spent, uh, theologians think, anywhere between two and a half to three years of ministering the gospel to them. As we unpack these verses, you will see the importance of what Paul is going to tell them because in verse 25, Paul says that he, he knows that none of the men he's speaking to will ever see his face again. So this is urgent. This is urgent. This is one of those last words moments in the Bible and it seems that there's a trend in Scripture that whenever a leader is giving his last words, it almost always is with a view to the next generation. And, and I mean, listen, as, as any of us age, even when I say goodbye, we were in Dallas to, to celebrate Jan's birthday uh, with our, our son, daughter-in-laws, and our grandgirls uh, Thursday, this Thursday through Saturday. And even saying goodbye to my sons. I'm, I'm hoping that it's not a final goodbye, but there's, there's just this sense 
of wanting to, to tell them something important, something that would affect not just their life, but their children's lives, my grandchildren's lives. It just seems like that's the theme of, of, of last words in Scripture. You, we really see it in Deuteronomy 6 when Moses dies before he goes into the promised land and, and just before he deploys Israel into the promised land, he speaks last words that are all about the next generation. Psalm 78 has that same kind of feel to it, and Paul is doing that here. What's his primary concern? Well, to declare and display his commitment to declare the whole counsel of God as the foundation of his ministry. But not just his ministry. He's doing this in order to model to the next generation, to transfer to the next generation. He's speaking to elders here, but precious ones, listen. Elders are only to be examples of how the whole body of Christ is to live. So you'll see in this, this sense of transferring this whole counsel of God from generation to generation. God made it easy to see the main point. And so look for repetition when you're studying the Bible. So often God uses repetition to establish the context of any passage that you're reading through. And God made it easy to see the main points of these verses through repetition. Did you notice in verse 20, I tried to kind of emphasize it in the way I read this morning. Paul said that he did not shrink from teaching anything profitable. So key on the word shrink and what follows it. Teaching anything profitable. And then he goes on to be more specific in verse 21 by really highlighting what he meant by most profitable. And that was that he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have the gospel. Uh, In other words, his message from, from, well, the New Testament is, is, is unfolding as Paul is doing this. But let's say the message from Genesis to Malachi is all about the gospel. That's, that, that's where it was in, in Paul's time. It was all centered on the gospel. And then in verse 27, here we got the repetition. He repeats the word shrink when he says that he did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. The word shrink means to hesitate. So, so I, I think probably most of us have been in a situation where we really felt like the Lord was leading us to, to give maybe a little bit of a hard truth to someone. Maybe it had some connotations of correction and whatever, but we shrunk back, didn't we? I, I, think, I, I think I did that a lot as a dad. I think there were times that I, I, the Lord wanted me to kind of press in into my son's heart, and I... I shrunk back. I thought, well, you know, I don't want to make them feel bad. I, I don't know that I've not done that uh, too often as one of your pastors to, to have something on my heart. And I, I think, well, you may not come back to the church if I tell you this. You might not like me. So it's easy to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And Paul is saying, we don't want to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. We don't want to, we don't want to avoid the hard parts of Scripture. We don't want to allow ourselves to be distracted from that primary responsibility. That's why, if you're visiting with us today, we're doing a mini-series right now, and, and that's a little, it's out of the ordinary for us. We typically teach through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We call it expository teaching, because it's really the best way that we know to be able to give you the whole counsel of God, to give you the whole redemptive storyline, both of the Old and New Testaments. 
We teach expository sermons as a way of guarding us and you from avoiding hard truths of Scripture, hard truths that expose our sin or reveal our idols, teaching Scriptures that are hard to understand. You know, there are, there are you know, we've just finished Daniel, and it's interesting reading Daniel commentaries. So many of them refer to the fact that many pastors will teach Daniel 1 through 6, and that's where they stop. Because chapter 7 to the end are very hard. Weren't they very hard? They were very hard. We asked for your prayers as we were teaching those. Expository teaching won't let us do that. We can't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. It it presses us into obedience to commands that we don't always want to obey. It causes us to speak biblically about marriage and divorce and gender and finances and sexual sin and forgiveness and bitterness and laziness, and the list could go on, couldn't it? Dia Carson really, I thought, says this so well, and it's it's a long quote for your notes, but I thought it just says this so well and really succinctly and powerfully. So would you read along in your notes? This is how D.A. Carson defines the whole counsel of God. When Paul attests that this is what he proclaimed to the believers in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders to whom he makes this bold declaration know full well that he had managed this remarkable feat in only two and a half years. Again, two and a half to three years. In other words, whatever else Paul did, He certainly did not manage to go through every verse of the Old Testament line by line with a full-bore explanation. He simply did not have time. What he must mean is that he taught the burden of the whole of God's revelation, the balance of things, leaving nothing out that was of primary importance, i.e. the gospel, never ducking the hard bits, helping believers to grasp the whole counsel of God that they themselves would become better equipped to read their Bibles intelligently and comprehensively. It embraced, and then he gives us these bullets, it embraced God's purposes in the history of redemption. And I love what he says here, truths to be believed and a God to be worshipped. Precious ones, that's what we are, again, Eric, thank you for the sermon from last Sunday because really when we preach the word of God, when we preach the gospel of grace, It is ultimately to result in worship. And that's what we so desire for our children's ministry. Children's ministry is not some sort of divine babysitting. (laughs) It's not not daycare on Sundays. It's wanting children to, to behold the whole counsel of God centered on the gospel through teaching and modeled through the lives of those volunteers in, in serving in that ministry in such a way that children would, would grow up as worshipers of God, not just people who know a few Bible stories. Amen? He goes on to say, it's an unpacking of human origin or creation. It's the, it's, it's the fall, it's redemption and destiny or restoration. It's a worldview that shapes all human understanding and a Savior without whom there is no hope. It's the conduct expected of God's people, commandments to be obeyed and wisdom to be pursued, both in our individual existence and in the community of the people of God and It's the pledges of transforming power, both in this life and the life to come, 
promises to be trusted, and hope to be anticipated. Wow, just so good. Thank you, Lord, for people like D.A. Carson. Oh, my goodness. Just so, so good. Promises to be trusted and hope to be anticipated. The gospel story in Scripture is one story. It's a string of beautiful pearls. And you got a sense of that in Luke 24 when Jesus, after his resurrection, he was walking with the disciples and they didn't recognize him. And you remember what it said? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted all the scripture concerning himself. There was Jesus giving the string of pearls to his disciples. He exposited the Old Testament and he showed them how it was one story that proclaimed Jesus as the one true Savior and Lord. And their response, their response, didn't our hearts burn with passion when we heard him teach that way? We, listen, we, we're not trying to create an emotion among you. We do want to put the word of God before you so that you behold the glory of God among you so that your heart would burn with, with amazement of the saving grace of God and the sacrifice of Christ and how he set his saving love upon you, a sinner who deserved judgment. Oh, may our hearts burn with that kind of passion because of the whole counsel of God. Being centered on the gospel as the whole counsel of God affects everything we do, both personally and corporately. So guys, this is where I'm going to ask if you'll put up the, the first slide of the, the personal expression. Oh, let's see, can you do... There we go. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. So, so this, is, this is what we're praying. The whole, God, the whole counsel of God centered on the gospel will accomplish in our lives. The gospel is the, is the blazing center, some have called it, of it all. But you see, look, it's supposed to affect everything in our lives. It's not compartmentalized. It's not a bunch of individual marbles in a can. We want to lose our marbles if that's the case. What we want is that it affects us. It affects our vocation how we think of work. It affects our commitment and engagement of the local church. It affects marriage. We call it the gospel according to marriage. It affects finances. It affects parenting. It affects education. It affects your private devotions in word and prayer. It, it affects personal evangelism. And there's just not enough spokes. I mean, we could go on way further than that, couldn't we? Is the gospel affecting your heart like that? That's the prayer. That's our prayer as elders. And that's our prayer for children's ministry. That's our prayer that the children of Sovereign Grace Church would grow up seeing the gospel as the blazing center of our church. And it would, it would affect, even at young ages, all of the various aspects of their lives. But it's not just personal life. This is how it affects our corporate life, too. Go ahead with the next slide, guys. Excellent. Thank you so much. This, this is why we promise as best as we possibly can, we're not trying to use pragmatism to grow this church. We're not, we're, we promise to try not to give you some little techniques in order to, to just have better programs. And oh, we want the gospel to be the blazing center of everything we do. And, and, and if it cannot be, we're not going to do that activity. But other churches may choose to do this and that. And, and, uh, <laughs> I'm going to reel myself in here because I was just thinking this illustrations, but I can't say them with a good heart. Um, 
We want everything we do to be informed by the gospel. So our preaching is informed by the gospel being at the center. Our counseling is... I, I was told of, of a uh, ministry in town that calls itself a, a Christian counseling ministry. Actually, several people have come to me and told me. I went three sessions into that counseling and not once did they use the scriptures. How do you counsel the soul of men and women without the word of God? I, so our counseling, our leadership development, our children's ministry, missions, youth ministry, evangelism, small groups. That's why we do this because it's, it's a means by which we transfer the gospel to others. And that's what this text is really speaking to us all about. We especially can't shy away from the whole counsel of God with children because it's easy for church kids to grow up thinking that they're not so sinful, right? Anyone who grew up in church probably can say, yep, that was me. I grew up just thinking, you know, I'm just kind of saved because I was in the culture of the church and all this kind of stuff. And so many times you hear such horror stories of church kids who, who attend church pretty regularly but go off to college and turn their back on Jesus, some for, for, some for the rest of their lives. We can't shy away from the whole counsel of God with children because we want them to grow up knowing they have a sin problem and that the sin problem will doom them in, in righteous judgment if they don't see that God sent a Savior to redeem them and rescue them from their sin. We don't want them to see themselves as better than they are because they're churchgoers. We don't want them to see the Bible as just a bunch of stories that have no more power to save them or change their lives than the little woman in the shoe. Is that a mother goose story? Old woman in a shoe. Nothing, well, I probably a, a senior woman in living in a shoe. Paul's asking them to remember the content of his teaching because they were to repeat it. Guys, the preachers aren't up here preaching so that you'll just be listeners of this. We're, we're praying that this is being transferred to you so that in the context of your homes and workplaces and the marketplace and in your schools and your sports that you're bringing this word of grace yourselves. They did not, did you notice that, that, that he's not asking this, these elders that he's passing it on to to find something new and creative. You need to be relevant to teach and preach. Every generation is to fulfill Paul's legacy of ministry. Pastors are not called to innovate new messages meant to draw crowds, but to repeat old messages. The old messages of Scripture to draw people to Christ. So how about this for a promise? So we promise to give you something old every time you come and worship with us. Something old besides me, right? Right, I know. That's a, I knew somebody was thinking that. Um, well, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. So this is the commitment of our elders this is the commitment of our children's ministry workers to present the whole counsel of God to the children. And this is interesting. I don't know if the Gospel Project intended to try to do this, modeled by uh, Paul speaking to Paul's ministry to the, the church at Ephesus. But if your child, so children's ministry on Sunday mornings goes from eight months old to second grade. If your child is in children's ministry, Every three years, they will hear the whole counsel of God. Every three years. 
Every three years. That doesn't mean every verse of the Bible. It means kind of like D.A. Carson was saying, the, the primary burden of God in Scripture, the gospel storyline from Genesis to Revelation. Every three years, starting with our pre-K class, all the way, and, and actually that will go all the way to fifth grade when we begin our third through fifth grade class. And that won't be on a Sunday morning. That'll be on an, uh, an, a different day of the week. But can you imagine, if, you're, if, you're, if you were here in this church for long enough, and your child started in, at eight months and went all the way through to fifth grade, that's, ooh, I should have done the math before I got in the pulpit. Was that twice they will have heard the entire storyline of the Bible by the time they reach fifth grade? That would position our kids to know more about Christ and his gospel than most of the people around the world. And our goal is to reach those people. Paul's commitment is just not to be the commitment of pastors in the church. It's, it's, it should be the commitment of every parent in this room. The church isn't called to do this by itself. And the parents are not called to do it by yourselves either. As much as Jen and I might have liked to have accomplished this by ourselves, I, it, it certainly, certainly is our goal. We want to do that as parents, but you know what? Jen and I look back at our lives. We definitely fell short of this, and we're so grateful for the people who have been in this church since our kids were little, people like Hugh, Alan and Danette in, in caring for our sons through youth ministry, Kim Estrada, who is one of our, our long-serving Sunday school teachers, Stephen Amy Avampado. All these people made gospel investments into our sons' lives through Sunday school and youth ministry. And, and, and they made such a difference because there's areas we fell short in or we were weak in. And it's amazing how God provided different members of the church so that there was this complementary relationship between the local church and, fam and parents in training up children in the way they should go. And I will forever sing the praises of those people. I'm so grateful. I see the difference it's made in all three of our sons. And now... So Hugh, Alan and Danette, Steve and Amy, Kim, you know what? Your investment, your gospel investment into my son's lives is now affecting Tatum Marie Ray's and, and Adeline Jean Ray's. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And we're grateful. Get this, there's approximately 50 of our members. Our total membership in our church is just nearing 100 50 people who have stepped up to serve in our new children's ministry. Thank you. Thank you for your heart to pass on the whole counsel of God to the next generation. So he's seeking to pass this commitment of teaching the content of the whole counsel of God to, the, to, to elders and teachers, but he's also seeking to pass on godly character, the, the life of a Christian, the heartbeat of a Christian, and you'll see that in the next section, where we, we're just calling this the whole counsel of God taught personally. And you see it in Acts 20, verses 18 through 21. Paul says it this way, you know how I lived among you. I, I, I heard somebody call this, I think this is a great way to call it, life on life ministry. Life on life ministry. You know, I, I've I've heard some really good preaching by God's grace in my life. 
And I remember some sermons, but you know, I have as much as I remember some sermons, I have vivid memories of godly people's lives that were invested into mine. The love they had, the patience they had. Oh, that's what Paul's getting at here. He says, I served you, Look, listen to how he described his character. I served you with humility and with tears. Humility because he knows that he has nothing that didn't come to him by God's grace. And it's by God's grace he's offering it up to others. I've described this here, I'm just kind of illustration. But, you know, so often, I don't know if you've talked to somebody who's shared God's word to you, but you've kind of felt like they were above you somehow and they were kind of talking down to you. They were telling you about God, but they were, they were communicating self-righteousness and lack of care, and you were more of a project than a person. And, and I think what Paul's talking about here, and when he talks about humility and tears, it's recognizing that apart from God, I am nothing. I'm dead, dominated, and doomed by my sin. And I need the grace of God. And he has given me the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And now as I serve others in that grace, I, I, this is the way I hope you'll experience our, our teaching and preaching ministry here, is that we actually serve God's word up to you. Because we love you and we respect you and we know you've been made in the image of God. And we want you to experience the grace of God being served to you, not forced and put down on you. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. And kids really resonate with that. And that's why, that's why so often I think it's important to get even physically down at the kid's level so that you can see, they can see, wow, you really care for me. You're not always just kind of looming above me teaching things. You really, you want to get down to my level, and not just physically, but even more that, that God's word, isn't it great that, that the scriptures weren't just made for, for giraffes? That, the, that, that it's, it, the only people that could be eligible to understand God's word are the highly educated, picking branches off tall trees. Aren't you glad that God calls us lambs and that he puts the word and makes it accessible to everybody? We want to do that in children's ministry. He says he taught the whole counsel of God publicly, so certainly from the pulpit, uh, certainly in, in public arenas, but he says privately and personally. And that's how we see our children's ministry. It's a combination of public proclamation, but engagement with the local church. It's life on life um, display of gospel character and gospel mission. It's gospel doctrine and gospel culture and community that the kids are experiencing. He also said he didn't exclude anyone, Jew and Greek, young and old, saved and lost. And he's asking them to recall this because he's asking them to replicate it in, in growing in godliness and being engaged in local church ministry in such a way that you are personally benefiting from the gospel and God's grace, and you are personally giving the gospel to others. So can I ask you just kind of a nosy meddling question? How much ministry do you receive life on life? How much ministry do you give life on life? We're hoping to present a context for the development of that. And for our children, one of the ways is through children's ministry. 
It's not, it's, it's not merely teaching. I love the way Alan puts it. It's really the modeling of biblical ecclesiology. It's where our kids see that really as a Christian, every member of the church is a minister of the church. I, I will never forget Dick Nafziger. I was in ninth grade. My parents were on the brink of divorce, violent marriage. Both my mom and dad were brutal, brutally physical to each other. It was, it was probably the darkest time that I can remember in my childhood. And wouldn't you know, my parents brought me to Sunday school. And Dick Nafziger was the teacher. He was the first man that, I'll ever, that I ever remember hearing the gospel from. Oh, my heart was tough. I didn't, I didn't put my faith in Christ at that point. But I was being, I was being changed. My hardened heart was made a little more tender but it wasn't just his teaching and preaching. Dick and his wife invited me over to his home every now and then, and I got to see what, what a, what a gospel-centered marriage could look like. I felt secure in their home because of the gospel I saw in their marriage. I felt the security. Oh, how we need people investing in life-on-life ministry with our children. I don't know if you saw in Desiring God, they just got a lot of different great blogs that can come out. And John Bloom was, was talking about, uh, in a recent, a recent blog, he was talking about some 20-something women that went, felt called to go to a large Latin American city. And there were tons of kids on the streets, abandoned by family, addicted to drugs, sex trafficking was rampant. And they just felt like, let's go make a difference with the gospel. And, and it was risky. Uh, their lives were constantly being threatened. And you know what they did? They got down on the kids' levels, and they helped feed them, and they loved on them. They taught them the Bible. They tried to help with their health care. They, they did all these things, and the Lord blessed it, and, and, and kids were coming in droves, and the government was getting jealous. And the government called in some kids and just, that were a little bit older in terms of processing things, and they said, we have so much, so many more resources to offer you than these women. Why do you go to them? And they said, because they love us. That's my prayer for every kid in this church. That they would know the love of Christ. And how would part of the way they know that? Because the people of this church love us. Oh, I'd love for that to be the testimony the increasing testimony of the kids in our church. So third point is that the whole counsel of God was, um, was not just taught personally, it was taught urgently. Paul doesn't only ask them to look back, look backward. That's what he's in terms of modeling content and character. But he also calls them to look forward. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And he says, did you notice that? How would your morning devotions be if every morning the Lord just said, listen, every place you go, imprisonment and affliction await you? How many of us would sign up for that ministry? <laughs> must, be, must be something else I'm going to read today, Lord, right? I mean, just one of those kind of things. It's amazing how, but isn't that true, you guys? And listen, I think it's going to be increasingly true for us. The path of declaring the whole counsel of God will lead to seasons of suffering. 
because this kind of teaching on sin and that there's only one way of salvation and that the sanctity of marriage is between one biological man and one biological woman, biblical teaching on gender, it's going to conflict with the culture, isn't it? This is so important in our time when so much of the theology being taught around us is that God's best life for you is a life without suffering. You just read what Paul, what Paul, and, and you know what? Did you also read that Paul considered this his best life? He considered this his best life. That kind of teaching, that worldly teaching, it may help you fit into the culture, but it'll never conform you to Jesus Christ. How can we face sufferings and trials like this? Well, verse 24 is our answer. So if you get your eyes on that, where Paul says, I do not account my life as being of any value nor as precious to myself. So let's stop for there in a minute and just kind of go, well, does Paul just not care about human life? Does he not care about the value of his life or my life? Let me try to explain it by way of an illustration. After Jen and I were married, we bought our first Honda. This was a bazillion years ago. And you'll notice we still drive Honda, so it's not an advertisement for Honda. I don't know why we just... Anyway, it was a brand new Accord. I wouldn't necessarily recommend just buying brand new cars unless you're... We were not able... (laughs) Anyway, I'm sorry. All these memories are flooding me right now. Um, It was the most expensive thing we had bought up until that point in our young marriage. And uh, just a few weeks before our oldest son, Will, was born, Jen was in a car accident on I-10 in New Orleans during rush hour. I'll never forget that phone call. Jen's been in an accident. I had just come on staff at the church, or the Sovereign Grace, it's now a Sovereign Grace Church in New Orleans. So what do you think I said when I heard Jen has been in an accident? Did I say, is our expensive Honda Accord okay? (laughs) You did? Wait, honey, I gotta gotta stay focused. Sorry, we can talk about that at lunch. Um, (laughs) It was a valuable car. But even though the car had value, it was nothing compared to the value of my wife's life and the life of our soon-to-be-born, firstborn son, Will. I'll never forget the desperate feeling as Jan was being checked in or checked by the doctor. I I wanted to tell him. You felt this way. You're going to resonate with this. As he's checking Jan and he's checking the pregnancy, checking the baby, I wanted to tell him, you better give your best care to her. You better give your best care to him. You're holding my heart in your hands. You felt that way, haven't you? You felt that way about your spouse, felt that way about your children. I was more than willing for the car to be totaled if only my wife and son could be okay. Paul is not saying that his life or your life has no value. It's just that compared to the treasure of God's saving word and the treasure of God's people and the treasure of being faithful to fulfill Christ's mission, his life had no value comparatively, right? I mean, we've received this treasure, but I don't know that you're going to really experience the treasure without the teaching of the whole counsel of God. 
I don't think our kids are going to grow up treasuring the, the, the worth of Christ and the glory of God without them learning the whole counsel of God centered in the redemptive storyline of the Bible in the gospel. The value of receiving eternal life through the sacrifice of the innocent Son of God for the sins of, of the guilty through grace-given faith in Jesus and the undeserved privilege of preaching that gospel of grace to others made his life expendable. Precious ones, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that faithfulness to this mission, being faithful is more important than my life going on. Where is that message happening I think it's happening in gospel-centered churches. I think it's happening in churches that are preaching the whole counsel of God. Oh, that God would burn that into our hearts. Faithfulness to this mission, ministering the whole counsel of God in content and character. Finishing that purpose for my life is more important than how long I live. God wants us to know that treasure, to experience this value of Christ. And to have this passion to transfer the treasure to the next generation. He'd been so committed to this, so sure that he had finished his work with these people. He tells them that if, if they don't go on with Christ, if they don't receive Christ, they only have themselves to blame. That's where he said, is, your blood will be on your heads. It won't, be, it won't be on his. I've done all I can do to position you to be faithful, to know Christ savingly, and to, to grow in Christ, to be faithful to Christ. I've not shrunk back from declaring to you the whole counsel to God. And then he's essentially saying, so imitate me. Imitate my teaching and my life. Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God because he obtained it by his own blood. So remember that phrase, you hold my heart in your hands. Really, precious ones, that's not originating with us. That is God himself. That's what God is telling these Ephesian elders. That's what he's telling parents. That's what he's telling pastors. The church, when I give you the church to care for, you are holding my heart in his hands. And there's two ways to know that. First is the value of the church. He paid for it with his own blood. That's what just gets me about, I don't have to go to church to be, oh, you just don't know how God prizes and treasures the church that you refuse to be a part of. But it's not just that they're valuable, they're also vulnerable. And so I'm looking here at the Spiegel's, I'm just looking, looking at you guys, and I'm seeing two precious, precious girls. Valuable and vulnerable. And you saw that, that's what, that's what he was saying. Because fierce wolves are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Be on the alert for three years, day and night. This was so important. It didn't matter how much I gave in the, in the daytime, how much I gave in the nighttime. This is critically important. The church is valuable and vulnerable. Do you realize, for, for just thinking about next generation ministry, again, this is not just a parenting verse. This is not just pastoring. This is local church scriptures. Because we are all to be following in these footsteps. Do you realize that, that in the, the generation our kids are growing up in, here are, some, here are some things. They're growing up in a world that says there's no absolute truth, Right? 
They're growing up in a world that says tolerance equals allowing any belief except what? Christianity. They're growing up in a world that says morality is really a matter of, of chosen social constructs. They're living in a world that says sexuality is a fluid category of ethics. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have that. That's, so see that right there, that was self-righteous. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. They're discovering that discovering who you are and not letting anyone hold you back is the ultimate standard of what it means to stand up for yourself. You heard that phrase, stand up for yourself. On what moral ground am I supposed to do that? That's the world our kids are growing up in. Tatie. Tatie's going to be two in a couple of weeks. And Will's a worship leader, and it was so funny. They sent us this video the other day. Here she is with a microphone. Well, not a real microphone, but pretending. And she's singing. I don't know what in the world she's singing, but it's... But then, then I hear... Let it go, let it go. <laughs> so just so in case, parents, I'm, I'm not like, like, so burn the movie Frozen. No, 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 no. Oh, look, I, that's a, <laughs> got some of our kids uh, interested at that point. You know, the lyrics of that song are really bad. They're really, really bad. They are godless. They're, they're standing up for yourself. That's essentially what the song is saying. Stand up for yourself. You don't need to stand up on the basis of truth revealed by God in Jesus Christ according to Scripture. Just stand up for yourself. Let it go. So I would use frozen parents as, as a, a teaching tool. Well, here's what frozen says. Here's what little let it go girl says. I don't know. I had boys. So I'm having to become like a girl papa, right? So this is all new for me. Um, but what a, what a great way to say, here's what she said. How about this? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah. Let's go. Don't let it go. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. But that's the, that's the kind of world we're growing kids in. God is saying, the church is my treasure. She's valuable and vulnerable. You're holding my heart in your hands. That's a message to us as elders. That's a message to us as children's ministry workers. That's a message to us as discipleship group leaders. You're holding my heart in your hands. Give them the whole counsel of God shared in humility and tears and sacrifice and finish the mission. The last point is this. That's all pretty heavy. And this is what we really kind of started with with Brad and Amy today. Does any of us feel capable of doing this on our own? It's a high calling, isn't it? Those of you who know, who know me well, you know that Sundays can be a struggle for me because I'm, I'm more aware of where I fell short. And I, I just, it's such an insult to God. It's such an insult to his grace. And it's such an insult to his word. So I'm sorry, Lord, and I'm sorry to you, church. I'm so thankful for our elders, our plurality of elders, because they're helping me see this and they're helping confront this in me. Here's how I want to leave every Sunday with you. 
I want to do as best I can, and Hugh wants to do the best he can, and Alan wants to do the best he can in giving you the whole counsel of God's Word, knowing that we're frail, fallen, finite men. And we fall short of doing the, the better work that we hoped we would do, and we coulda, shoulda, woulda, and all those things. But isn't it great to know that we entrust you to God and the Word of His grace? Because it's the wor God's Word that does God's work, really, isn't it? It's God's grace that empowers the transformation of the human heart. And isn't that really hopeful, isn't it? For our children's ministry workers, that's how I, I pray that you'll leave every Sunday. Well, didn't seem like we accomplished a lot today. Must have been a full moon because the kids were crazy. You know, but we gave them God and the word of his grace. And we're entrusting them to that. And therefore, we can sleep tonight, can't we? Because God's still awake, and he will not allow his word to return without accomplishing what it was fully intended to do. Let's stand and close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for such a precious word. There's so many things to pray for. I think one of them would be, Lord, for, for us, that this, that this would become a core value, increasingly be a core value for our church. We want to be a church that is centered on the gospel and the redemptive storyline from Genesis to Revelation. Would you help us to treasure the whole counsel of God? Lord, we're willing to lose our marbles in exchange for the treasured strand of pearls of the Scripture. Lord, help us to value the church the way you value the church. You shed your own blood for people who deserve the exact opposite we deserve to be judged and sentenced to eternal death. And yet, by your mercy, you gave us grace in Jesus. Help us to be on guard, knowing that there is a prowling, roaring lion about seeking to devour people's faith, to keep them from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we pray that in the days and weeks and months ahead, the children of Sovereign Grace Church could grow up treasuring the whole counsel of God. We pray that you would just bring salvation after salvation after salvation into our children. Both, Lord, in the work, the, the, the critical work of parenting, the critical work of the church, working together for these these godly goals. Oh Lord, may you be so valuable that we would not count our lives as of any value compared to you and the mission you've called us to. Help us value finishing the mission more than we value a happy, brief life. 
May you receive all the glory. May our children receive all the joy in Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.